and welcome to Poly Pages, the podcast where genuine poly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'll come out when I'm ready. Don't lock the door. Take me in. I'm Krista. I'm Michelle. And Michelle, where in the world are you? I am in Portland, Oregon, USA. Awesome. Nice. Nice to talk to another West Coaster. I'm in San Francisco. Um, ah, nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, very excited to chat with you today uh, about uh, part two of the polyamory breakup book. Um, for those listeners who don't know who you are, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, my name is Michelle Hai. Um, I am the gal behind Polyamorous While Asian, where I... Uh, talk about my personal experiences um, over the past 10 years of actively practicing polyamory. Um, And I also seek to uh, speak about non-monogamy through a more like intersectional lens and trying to focus more on um, the experiences of fellow like POC who are um, really underrepresented in non-monogamy communities. (laughs) <laughs> well, we're, we're super excited to have you join um, Polly Pages again for, for this discussion. Um, out of curiosity, have have you read the Polyamory Breakup book before? Were you doing a reread um, for, for this conversation? What's like your relationship to this text? To be honest, I'm really great at starting books, not so great at finishing books. Um, very excited to chat with you about part two. And this was my first time reading through it. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, you had any kind of different takeaways upon like this reread or, you know, if it kind of still lines up with your experience reading it for the first time. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear just kind of your general impressions of this section, your kind of like big takeaways before we jump into more of the, um, you know, specific topics. Is that it, it does provide a really good, um, like overall guide line of a lot of major points like I I feel like it does cover almost all major points of uh, aspects of polyamorous breakups I had an interesting time reading part two especially with the discussion of uh, jealousy kind of jumping into some of the the chapters I feel like the first two chapters which were about picking the wrong partners or partners who want incompatible models of open relationships I almost feel like these two sections while I understand why they had their own chapters kind of fit under this umbrella of just like people who want incompatible models of relationships in general, whether mm-hmm. that's, you know, a, moni- a mono poly situation or just two people who are poly or non-monogamous who want, um, you know, different models of of that kind of relationship. And so that sort of brings up this question for me of can people in these kinds of relationships where they do want these sort of incompatible models, um, can they make serious compromises and be happy or are these relationships you know just kind of doomed from from the start see i'm not so pessimistic to think that these relationships are doomed from the start Mm -hmm. like absolutely but the odds are definitely against them i think like incompatible relationship styles it's a pretty fundamental thing you know not everyone who's non-monogamous identifies um, with it as an identity or an orientation um, like sexuality But I think, yeah, it's more of a deal breaker for people who do identify more with it as an orientation. 
Um, I think people who see it more as like a lifestyle choice, um, I think there's a bit more wiggle room. Um, there's more room for compromise and stuff. Um, but even then, um, while I believe in a sort of give, a give and take in relationships, obviously, I always kind of side eye serious compromise, like very intense compromise, because that seems to imply that um, one or both part or any parties involved are giving up um, like, yeah, fundamental parts of, of themselves. And that just doesn't seem very conducive to like really uh, sustainable relationships. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm really glad that you brought up this difference between folks who, you know, identify as polyamorous or non-monogamous as, as part of their, you know, orientation versus those who kind of see it just as like a part of, of their, their lifestyle and, and can maybe like compartmentalize it in a different way that, that some, some folks can't, um, you know, I'm thinking that some of the tensions in, in some of my previous relationships had to do with this, so that we just approached relationships in, in a fundamentally different way. And I think that that can cause a lot of tension and strife. Um, and it, it ultimately, I think, um, sets up different goals for, for the relationship, um, and for two people who are approaching it in, in this different way. And, and it can be really challenging, um, for either, either party to, to be happy when, when you're coming at it from just like two totally different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, uh, like, like everyone has their own life experiences that they bring into relationships. So it's one thing to be like, oh, you know, I see it this way and the other person sees it that way. And then there's a realization that like, oh, we do see it differently. And so maybe we can come to, you know, meet, meet in the middle. And then there, um, on the other hand, there are just like fundamental, like, yeah, I will not budge <laughs> from this worldview because this is how I move through life. And to do otherwise would be, uh, yeah, compromising my own, journey too much or just, yeah, it just does not fit my capacities or boundaries. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there can be, I think, uh, some gray area uh, between that, but some things just, I don't think can't be compromised on in a healthy way. Yeah, yeah. And how do you personally approach talking to potential new partners about, you know, the, the model of relationships that they want when, when deciding to, to date someone, something that I'm noticing as I'm getting back on the apps is that there are a lot of new folks out there right now, mm. at least in the area that, that I'm in. And they're just kind of like, I'm open to whatever, or, you know, just, just <laughs> seeing, seeing what comes along. And so, you know, it can, it can be more challenging, I think, to, chat with people who maybe don't have as much experience or are just saying that that they want whatever to really uh, hone, you know, what it is that they're looking for. So that way you can determine, you know, is this person going to be a good fit for me or not? How do you how do you approach conversations with potential partners? Yeah, so I'm I'm mostly like a dating apps person, like in the before times and these times, like I I'm just kind of terrible at approaching people like in person first. So dating apps all the way for me. Um, and I find that super helpful because um, especially apps like OkCupid, which um, I mean, the I feel like the culture has changed a little bit, but it still has the um, option to have like a longer profile. Um, and I always appreciate when people just go into detail about what their relationship style uh, is like on the profile. Um, but generally uh, the conversation um, in dating app, like messaging comes up pretty early oftentimes. And I'll just directly ask them like, Hey, that's cool to meet another polyamorous person. What's your relationship style like, or what's your relationship philosophy? 
the the way that people like they have the vocabulary, which which doesn't always mean that they're very experienced or super knowledgeable. But personally, I see maybe potential for more like casual connections sometimes if everything else is compatible. The way that people are able to describe or not describe their relationship style can really uh, yeah give a lot of information. I like that question. What's your relationship philosophy? I'm going to have to steal that one for myself and start mm-hmm. using that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it feels less like, um, <laughs> it feels a bit less rigid where it's like, what is your structure like? You know, like, tell me what your polycule looks like. Yeah. Uh, philosophy, I feel like can just be more broad. Like it doesn't have to be about non-monogamy specifically Um, because I feel like even with uh, monogamous people if they have a relationship philosophy that isn't just stuck in um, all the conventions of modern normativity then I think there's more to work with there. What do you think about it is kind of possible to renegotiate the the terms of the relationship you know once once you're in it or um, what are some of the challenges with, with trying to, uh, to do that? I personally think that anyone going into any relationship should expect to have the relationship change. Um, like not necessarily in a sort of dreaded way where it's like, oh no, getting into this relationship, like it's gonna change so drastically or whatever. But like, it's such a, it's such a cliche, but it's, it's <laughs> prevalent for a reason. Like the only constant is change. And I feel like especially in non-monogamy when there are like more variables, more people involved there, yeah, there are more factors that can um, affect the different relationships. Um, So I think, yeah, even in monogamy, like you should be prepared for either yourself or your partner to like, to have new kind of revelations about themselves or the world or the relationship. And it can definitely suck. It can definitely feel like being blindsided and whatnot, but like, that's that's kind of part of life. And I think it's unrealistic to think that the relationship will stay the same. So yeah, so it doesn't make it suck any less, but I think it's always good for anyone to go into any relationship, keeping in mind that, yeah, things will probably change. And um, yeah, I, and I don't think it's sometimes what a person wants. Yeah, yeah, can can be compatible with with the other partner. Sometimes, sometimes not. It's it's such a wide range of possibilities. Yeah, sometimes you know the relationship ends there, and that's the end of that relationship. It doesn't mean that it's a failure. It means that you know this journey that ran parallel is now kind of forking off. Um, and then for other people, it's like, wow, okay, um, need to adapt a little bit, kind of roll with the punches a little bit. But like, okay, no, we can we can accommodate this. This still fits within you know both of our boundaries and both of our worldviews and um, our comfort levels and stuff. And yeah, we it'll take a lot of work, maybe some therapy, but we can make it work. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point. And something that I think this book does really well is frames breakups or relationship transitions or de-escalations, however you want to think about it as not, not a relationship failure. Something that, you know, mononormative culture does is whenever a relationship ends, like it failed, you, you didn't reach the the top of the escalator with, <laughs> with the marriage and the kids and, and living happily ever after forever. And therefore it's a failure. It was something I, I kind of appreciate about um, just sort of the general discussions and the way that, that Labriola talks about relationships is that there can be all sorts of ways that relationships can end or, or transition, but that doesn't mean that, that it's a failure. Tangential to the t- conversation about like breakups and stuff. Um, yeah. Goals. 
like um like going into relationships um with like such a specific thing in mind I think can often set people up for failure and so yeah I also appreciated that let's talk a little bit about um some of the other sections the the next chapter talks about relationships that end due to poor time and energy management um I find this a really interesting topic uh in general but you know how how do you personally determine whether or not someone is good at managing their time and energy? Like, what is something that you look for um, when when you're you're trying to determine can can this person manage their time and energy well, and will they be able to like you know give me what I want? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, again, going back to the compatibility thing, I think there are some people who like you know being super busy and appreciate other people being super busy and stuff and like having a full plate all the time. Then there are other people who um, definitely prefer to have a lot more flexibility in, in their schedule. Um, yeah. So I don't think there's one right way. I think, um, people can, uh, manage their time wisely, you know, with, with either, either end of the spectrum with regard to busy schedules, but something that I look for, uh, personally, like as someone who's like solo polyamorous and someone who doesn't like to spend like a whole lot of time, um, with, with partners, like, even in the before time with the most regularity, the partner that I would see most often was um, about once a week and like maybe, maybe twice a week, but I could never regularly see a partner like twice a week or more. And so uh, this, this would just be a pretty like upfront discussion for me if it ever comes to that point where we're scheduling or we're talking about um, the relationship styles or philosophies where I say that, yeah, I have a lot kind of going on with my life. I have, um, you know, several partners and whatnot. And my availability is, you know, uh, maybe in the beginning, sometimes once a month, sometimes like maybe twice or like three times a month. And like, is that okay with you? And, you know, whatever answer that they give, um, like it, it doesn't have to be like, oh, you know, this, this person sucks or whatever, or this person is just like, uh, too busy. It's just a, <laughs> an, again, a compatibility thing and something that I look out for. Uh, and, and like you said, like, sometimes it has to take a while to figure out, but you know, how often does this person have to cancel? How often does this person have to, you know, reschedule, or is it like a last minute cancellation thing? And when they are with me, like, are they present? you know, or are they kind of frazzled or maybe are they like too tired because it seems like they're just doing too much. Yeah. I think those are some main things that uh, I tend to look out for. How do you make sure that kind of the emotional labor doesn't fall on one person more than another, uh, another in terms of managing time and energy with, within a relationship. There were a couple of examples in, in this chapter specifically that, um, made me chuckle. I, I don't know, really know how to frame it. There, there was one example. Um, the couple's name was Jack and Madeline. Uh, Madeline was the wife. Jack had another outside partner and, and Madeline was helping Jack manage his relationship, like telling Jack, oh, you should text, you know, your other partner so that she feels special and, and would like buy, buy her flowers for him to give to her. To me, like that, that is a, a level of, emotional labor that like, you know, I'm not going to manage my, my partner's other relationships. You know, that's, that's something Mm -hmm. for them to do themselves. How, how do you personally kind of make sure that, that, that labor is, is equal in a, in a partnership? Uh, Yeah. I found that example kind of funny as well, because I'm also like, wow, I (laughs) definitely not my style. Um, but like if it works for them and if it's sustainable, you know, that's, that's pretty cool and more power to them. I, I did it all. It all comes down to boundaries. 
um, where it's just like, what am I willing to do? What is my capacity? You know, at, at what level do I kind of operate best? And, and what are my limits where like, maybe I can operate at this capacity for a little bit, but then I have to scale back. So for me, I think the way I approach it is just, I'm in control of my own schedule. And if a person has time, great. If a person doesn't have time, okay. And like, if a person keeps canceling or if a person keeps like flaking out or a person just isn't showing up even when they physically are at dates, then it's just up to me to have the boundary of being like, mm, do I want to continue, continue this or not? Do I want to have a check-in or conversation about this to try to work on it or not? You know, the, the person can kind of live their life, but I'm also going to live my life and determine whether or not their presence in my life is... Um, you know, healthy for me or not. So yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes down to yeah, just personal boundaries and personal responsibility. And I think something else that's important to maybe talk about that came up in this section when I was reading it is sort of the privileges of, of time and energy management. There, there was an example of um, a couple who would like hire personal assistants <laughs> to manage their time. And obviously like not everybody has the money to, to, you know, do that. Um, and there are going to be certain privileges for people who are like child-free or childless, um, you know, in terms of being able to manage their time. Um, if we're talking about neurodivergent folks versus neurotypical folks, like I know for me, when I am struggling with my mental health and, and going through depression, it's very hard for me to want to plan things in advance because I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to feel a week from now. Like I would probably love to see you, but I might get to that day and just feel like I, I am not in a place to, to be social. And so it's, it can be very difficult for me to, to make plans and, and manage my schedule in that way. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, when people, um, like, like polyamory absolutely can be like a, like a privilege uh, way of, of being, um, which isn't to say that like, oh, it's all fine and dandy and there aren't ways in which there are cons, but like to be able to sustain, I think a lot of non-monogamous relationships, yeah, requires that the person has the um, like physical and emotional capacity that they, um, you know, not, not necessarily always, you know, like <laughs> we don't have to go on expensive dates all the time, but like have the uh, time and money and other resources to be able to um, sustain all these other relationships. And, and then, like you said, like other factors, like, um, you know, having children or, you know, being uh, neurodivergent and, and all these other things. In, I think, a lot of the way that uh, our society is set up, it can be difficult to even maintain one, like, long-term serious relationship, much less two or more than that. So, yeah, I... <laughs> I feel like I, I often dream of this like utopia where it's like, oh, you know what, how many people uh, would be non-monogamous in some way if they didn't have the restraints of like, you know, having to work 40 plus plus hours a week um, uh, to scrape by or, you know, didn't have all these other kind of like mm, kind of BS things that really shouldn't have to, you know, exist. How much more capacity people would have and how much more room and opportunity to choose like non-monogamy if didn't have all this other stuff to deal with. <laughs> 
Well, let's let's jump into to jealousy. Um, jealousy has has its own chapter, and and Labriola kind of distinguishes the difference between you know jealousy that that comes from sort of these other relationship issues like partners who want incompatible models of open relationships might be you know jealous of their partner spending more time with other partners, and she also talks about jealousy just as a relationship killer itself. How do you talk about jealousy to potential partners? How do you feel out like what what is their their jealousy like? How do they manage it? How do they talk about it? Um, and what are some either red or green flags that you look for um, when you're talking to people about their jealousy? Like I, I think it goes back to like that relationship philosophy question. Um, again, like people can reveal a lot uh, through that. Yeah. And, and I think it can depend on, you know, the kind of relationship structure that they have. I feel like people who are in like more of a hierarchical um, situation, um, not necessarily are prone to jealousy more, but again, it, it depends on how, on how they talk about it, where it's like, oh, you know, uh, my, my spouse, like, yeah, they have other partners and stuff like that. Um, if they seem to talk openly about um, their larger structure, about like their partners and metas and stuff, like it seems more okay. Again, it's not like, oh, this person's absolutely fine all the time, but it seems like at least they have a sort of system for themselves figured out. Uh, if it's more don't ask, don't tell, like that that can work. That can absolutely work. I don't think don't ask, don't tell is like an absolute um, red flag, especially if like they're fairly, fairly open about it. So with that kind of structure with don't ask, don't tell, like it seems to set up that like, yeah, they don't want to know and they would probably react poorly if they knew about your other partners. But again, if they are aware of that and if they're actually communicative about that without kind of like, I don't know, wielding it over your head or whatever, I, I think it's it, it, it can still work. I mean, one of the wonderful uh, and kind of stressful things about non-monogamy is the variety and diversity of styles and structures that can work. Definitely. And when do you think jealousy goes from being you know, a more of a, I hesitate to call it a productive emotion, but something that like, you know, flags for you as an individual, like, oh, hey, there's something I'm feeling insecure about within my relationship. Let me examine that and maybe talk to my partner about it um, and deal with it in a healthy way. When does it go from that to like, this is, this is like destructive in my relationship and, and when does it start to threaten the relationship? Do you think what, what is that line? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think there's, um, like when uh, kind of like a, what's it, like John Gottman's like four horsemen signs that a relationship will not last. Um, one of the big ones is like resentment. Like if you feel, I think if you feel yourself starting to feel resentment where it's like you kind of hate your partner or maybe you're kind of wishing ill and having more kind of negative feelings as opposed to like positive feelings, then I think that's a big sign that um, there are uh, insecurities there that are are much deeper um, because yeah ultimately all jealousy just stems from in insecurities in general and then it's up to the person to figure out what what it is where it's like 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 personally for me um the usual suspects always come down to fear of rejection fear of abandonment i am afraid that like oh have a 
really nice relationship and then they'll leave out of the blue. Um, and, and so then it's, it's up to, it's up to these people and, and, you know, it's kind of up to the people around them to support them as best as they can within their capacities, um, to help find the root causes of these insecurities. Unfortunately, you know, there, there aren't many, um, support systems for people who are in non-monogamous relationships. I mean, I also think that there aren't enough support systems for people like healthy support systems for people, even in monogamous relationships that aren't just like rehashing of kind of toxic narratives. Yeah, I, I think it has to be up to the person to realize whether or not they have the support or they're in the environment or if they have the resources to be able to tackle these insecurities. And sometimes they have to, I don't know, quote unquote, de-escalate from non-monogamy in order to address that because that's um, kind of the best environment for them to do that in maybe a more closed off um, setting where there aren't as many factors kind of bombarding them. You know, if, if they're feeling more of like the four horsemen coming up, that's definitely a huge, huge sign that a course correction needs to occur. This just, this brings up a question for me of are, are some people just too jealous to be poly or is, or, or non-monogamous and, and is this something, you know, that with enough time and, and resources, anybody can work through or are some people just not oriented towards this this lifestyle yeah um yeah i i think i do think that like non-monogamy isn't for everyone i i think even in the this utopia that i <laughs> i think about in my mind like yeah i'm sure there will be plenty of people who would still choose monogamy yeah i think this also brings me to kind of thoughts I had around that chapter around jealousy, where she seems to focus a lot on like that question of like the, the human nature kind of question. And I always, it always kind of gives me pause when people very confidently say like, oh yeah, it's just innate in human nature that, you know, yada, yada, yada. And she seems to drive home this point that like, yeah, it's just in human nature for all humans to be jealous. There are certain sections even where she quotes someone saying that like, oh, it would be weird if you had a partner that wasn't jealous at all. And I'm like, mm, I feel like those people are out there, like, especially in non-monogamy community. Like I've definitely encountered people who like, yeah, they just kind of don't get jealous <laughs> when like their partners have other partners. So I think it's kind of like a, mm, the framework of that chapter seems a bit too pessimistic, seems a bit too simplistic with regard to the like human nature question. Like, do I think that some humans are just so innately jealous that, you know, no matter what kind of support or environment, they couldn't tackle those root insecurities? I don't believe so. I think that um, there's always a way if, you know, if the person wanted to, if the person had the capacity and resources, I think if a person really felt called to non-monogamy, um, yeah, that there are ways, that there are ways around and through it. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think this is just bringing up the idea for me that nothing within relationships, whether it's polyamory or monogamy or non-monogamy, nothing is absolute. You know, there, mm -hmm. there are no extreme ends of the spectrum like everything is, is sort of in that in that gray area and and so it's it's just kind of up to the individual to determine you know is this the right path for me do I have the the resources and the wants to be able to put in the work to make that happen 
Well, uh, as we're kind of wrapping up um, our thoughts about this section, something that's just sort of coming up for me out of the conversation that we're having and and the conversations I've had with other folks about the book is is how much communication is important, like upfront, like at the beginning, when you're first talking to somebody, you know, that question, what is your relationship philosophy can tell you so much about a person and their approach to, to relationships and, and non-monogamy and, and just really communicating with, with somebody about your wants, needs, boundaries, desires, like those, those all need to be front loaded in order for you to set yourself up for a potential relationship to be successful. I I feel like a lot of people sort of let those, those questions maybe linger um, longer than they should, because maybe they just, they feel like an instant attraction to somebody and they're like, oh, I got to see where this goes. Like, even if we may not be compatible or, you know, for some other reason, maybe they just don't have the experience or knowledge to be able to like communicate uh, about those those sorts of things, but um, you know what what I'm kind of recognizing out of looking at all of the examples at the book and just through um, through our conversation is is like these are important conversations to have um, you know right away when when you're looking for potential partners and it can save you both kind of a lot of time and and heartache to kind of establish those those compatibilities early on so that you know, neither of you are, are wasting your time or like getting one of you is getting more invested in something that it doesn't have the potential for the longevity that like both of you want. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely agree. Like I think um, that especially with like more of the toxic as- aspects of like modern normative culture, where it's like, oh, everything should be easy breezy, where it's like, if there's a connection and an attraction, like you don't even you don't have to explicitize anything it'll just flow and it'll be perfect and you'll live happily ever after it's like no monogamous non-monogamous like it's it can be so so beneficial in the short term and in the long term to yeah to bring a lot of this stuff up where it's like you know if you do want to see a long-term thing um with this person uh, you know, suss out what their politics and values are like, you know, it doesn't have to be like an interrogation. You don't have to come with like a checklist unless you want to, unless that's your thing. Yeah. There's, there's so much of that stereotype where like non-monogamous people just talk the heck out of their relationships like all day long. And some people are like, mm, that's not sexy at all. Like where's the spontaneity. And that's also something that I appreciated in part two, where she, um, she talks about like uh, the myth of like spontaneity and, and things like that it's really a game changer. <laughs> like over the past 10 years, like it's such a game changer to be able to find people that like you can connect with on your similar values, like up front, and you know what the expectations are, you know what the kind of, yeah, the expectations and boundaries with which you can kind of play around in this relationship and kind of explore together rather than almost willfully, you know, the blind leading the blind until you like crash into like a major conflict and you're like, Oh no, how could we have first seen this? You know, and, and talking about things up front, like you said, like front loading, like it doesn't prevent all conflict. It doesn't um, automatically make things perfect, but it definitely sets everyone up for uh, success uh, a lot more. It, it puts um, people more on the same page. Like, I feel like some people aren't even in the same book a lot of the time when they leap into relationships solely based on just like that initial spark or attraction. And yeah, like you can make it sexy. You can make it flirty. Like it doesn't have to be 
super rigid <laughs> and and whatnot. Like there are definitely ways to be still very flirty and playful and fun. Um, yeah, to still have fun with it uh, while gathering the information that you need to help determine whether or not this is a relationship you actually want to pursue. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally think there's an art to it. You know, like it, it can be difficult to navigate those conversations at first and, and they do feel sort of like rigid or, or unsexy. Um, but I, I think, you know, the more that you have those conversations, the more that you can, you know, figure out how to talk about them in a way that is like stimulating and fulfilling, um, mm -hmm. as, as opposed to, yeah, sort of just like trying to check something off a list to make sure that this person like meets, you know, what, what it is that you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it can be similar to like, you know, like uh, before having sex with someone like asking like, what, what do you like? You know, like what, what, uh, what parts do you like touched? What parts do you not like touched? Like, you know, and like, it can, it can be fun. It can be, if, if anything, establish greater connection and closer connections. So you're not just like fumbling around. <laughs> Um, anything that you've learned in, in your last 10 years about um, poly or non-monogamous breakups that you want to share? Yeah, like overall, I think this book like is a, does provide a good overview. I like the way that she um, like breaks things down. Um, I think like the what she lists as, you know, some of the most common uh, reasons for, for polyamorous breakups can be very helpful. I think this can be, yeah, is, is a really good resource um, for a lot of people you know, whether you're just starting out or like you've been doing it for a long, long time. I think a lot of like, especially in part two, it just, I think, reaffirms a lot of, you know, I, I think things I've experienced in, in the past 10 years, especially with like time management and, uh, you know, compatibility in relationship structure and style. I would say over the over the past 10 years, I've only had one like major, I, I guess what you would call breakup. Like I've like, I've come into and out of people's lives and people have come in and out of my life um, in a fairly like, kind of organic way but there's only been one that's been like mm, we have to like talk about it and stop and like explicitly break up and never see each other again and that helps you know within non-monogamy um I think that breakup wasn't as hard as it would have been if it was just purely a monogamous breakup because I did have other partners at the time partners that I still have today who um, were there to help support me and help me still feel lovable, <laughs> um, which I think uh, is often a thing that, you know, after a monogamous breakup, um, one can often question like, oh, is it me? Am I broken? Am I even lovable or anything? But just having a support system is a real game changer, monogamous or non-monogamous. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Michelle. This has been just such a fun and lively discussion. Um, is there anything that you'd like to plug before we say goodbye? Where can folks find you? Anything that you want our listeners to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mostly live on Instagram and you can just um, at polyamorous while Asian. I'm there and I'm always happy to like chat with people and continue to share my experiences. Yeah. Yeah, highly recommend you check out Michelle on Instagram. That's that's where I first came across you. Um, you put out so so much engaging and informative content. So definitely recommend that that folks check you out there. Oh, 
Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. 